The book of Ephesians tells you how to live a heavenly life in a hell-like world. Like many of Paul's epistles, it is divided into two major divisions. The first three chapters comprise the theological foundation. Bear in mind that all Christian experience is deeply rooted in theology. Don't ever say, it really doesn't make any difference what you believe. The important thing is how you behave. That is arrant nonsense. It makes all the difference in the world what you believe. For what you believe will determine how you behave. And the majority of erratic experience on the contemporary scene today is the product of men and women whose theology and understanding of the truth of God is dreadfully shallow. A person who does not know the truth of God is a prey to every bug in the spiritual atmosphere. The cults flourish on evangelical Christians who were untaught. But doctrine is dynamic. Revelation always demands a response. So in chapters 4 through 6, you have the experiential superstructure which is built upon this theological foundation. Now please note the word I am using and use it with discrimination. Every now and then I hear someone refer to this section as the experimental section. No, this is not an experiment, but it is to become an experience. And this truth is to produce this experience. Now it's perfectly obvious that when you examine the foundation, you discover it's a foundation intended for a skyscraper. So Paul says, don't build a shack on a foundation intended for a skyscraper. The first three chapters deal with the believer's wealth in Jesus Christ, indescribably enriched and endowed seated in the heavenly, all spiritual blessings communicated to the one who is in Christ. But in chapters 4 through 6, the apostle turns to discuss the believer's walk. I call this section God's Orthopedics Clinic. And the principle is, you learn to walk by walking. I have four amazing children. You would expect that now that you have met their mother. 
every one of them learned to walk in exactly the same way. One day, each of them was in his playpen prison, looking out from behind the bars, and he discovered someone walking across the floor, and he said, My, look at that amazing peripatetic action. I shall now proceed to walk. And he got up and walked and has been walking ever since. Isn't that remarkable? You believe it, don't you? Every one of my children learned to walk in exactly the same way. You know the process of pushing up and looking around and finally learning to sit up and then grabbing a hold of those bars and pulling himself up and wobbling around and finally letting go one day. And, <laughs> and you finally get him outside and he starts to take some steps with you holding his hand and then he can go on his own and he sees Dad across the room and he starts to head toward him and his feet are going faster than his body and the first thing you know he sprawls on the floor and you hear him say, Shucks, I guess I just never was called to walk. <laughs> Don't laugh too hard, my friend. That's exactly how a lot of Christian experience is communicated. You learn to walk in the spiritual realm exactly as you learn to walk in the physical realm. You walk by walking, and you fall, and you get up, and you walk, and you fall, and you walk, and you walk, and you fall, and you never get to the place where you cannot fall. But the longer you walk, the more you learn how to avoid the process of falling. Now the key to the section is chapter 5 and verse 18 where Paul says, Stop being drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be getting filled with the Holy Spirit. How will I know when I am under the control of the Spirit. Well, my friends, it's not as difficult as some preachers would have you believe. There are indistinguishable marks of a Spirit-controlled man. And to me it is not an accident that the very first area the Apostle Paul selects to discuss is your family life. And for a reason. If you want to know if Christianity really works, try it on for size in your own home. If it works in your home, you've got the genuine item. And if it doesn't work in your home, don't export it. 
I ask you, are you filled with the Spirit? Well, you say, Brother Hendricks, let me tell you about my Bible classes. I'm totally unimpressed. But let me tell you about the five people I led to Jesus Christ in the last two months. I am still unimpressed. But let me tell you how active I am with the navigator. I'm less impressed. Let me look in your home. If I can see the fruit of the Spirit in your home, and your children tell me, my father has the real disease, then I have unmistakable proof that you are under the control of the Spirit. Every now and then I run into somebody who tells me he hasn't sinned for so many years. I met a bird not too long ago who told me he had not sinned for 12 years. <laughs> and you know, whenever I meet a person like this, I have the strongest urge to interview their wife <laughs> or their children. And I jarred him no end by saying, my friend, do you mean to tell me that Jesus Christ has had a rival in you for 12 years? I really don't think he had thought that one through. But I'll tell you where I am impressed. With the control of the Spirit. And that's by looking in your home. On my sabbatical, I took very few engagements. One of which was here at the Glen. Another of which was a choice opportunity afforded me of ministering at the National Sunday School Convention in Anaheim, California. I was invited to give the main address on Thursday evening, and I shall never forget walking out on that platform. There were 8,000 people gathered. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this kind of an assignment or not, but this has a tendency of giving you a touch of paranoia. And you sit on the platform in sort of semi-consciousness while they grind out the program, and all of a sudden you hear your name, Hendricks. <laughs> and you're on. And you know, it's a traumatic experience moving from that chair to this pulpit and looking around and seeing 8,000 people and coming to the stark realization, God, unless you speak through me, we've had it. <laughs> My friends, I find it relatively easy to be under the control of the Holy Spirit speaking to 8,000 people. What else can you do? <laughs> and that evening, I sensed I was speaking way beyond myself. And obviously, the Spirit of God was using me as His instrument. Then I caught a plane for Dallas, and my lovely wife met me at the plane 
and at the appropriate time said, Sweetheart, I hate to tell you, but the sewer is broken. Well, that's no problem. Call the plumber. She says, I've had him three times. And he says, it's caved in, and it's going to have to be replaced. Fine. Replace it. Well, he says it'll cost $450. $450. So when I got home, I said to my son, Bill, Hey, Bill, how would you like to get involved in a project? <laughs> and amazingly enough, he leaped to the opportunity. Now, if you live in Texas, you've got the picture because you know what black gumbo is. People who have never been in this territory really don't have the picture at all. My friend, it is just like concrete. So Bill and I start down, and we go down and down and down, and we get down about four and a half to five feet, and we hit the pipe, and sure enough, caved in. So we start to dig the trench out, and we get about six feet out. And man, we're shot. We've had it. So here we are in the middle of this trench, about eight feet in the ground, when my son says to me, Hey, Dad, I've got an observation. <laughs> I've taught him how to study the Bible, the first step of which is observation. So I said, what is it, Pal? Well, he said, Dad, I've noticed that that pipe is going like this. And if this is that deep here... <laughs> he said, buddy, you're coming through loud and clear. And while we're in the midst of this profound meditation, somebody flushes the toilet. <laughs> know about the filling of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> you know what my conclusion is? It's easier to be under the control of the Spirit speaking to 8,000 people than it is in an eight-foot hole when somebody flushes the door. <laughs> but you know what I also know? That's where Christianity functions. I am so fed up with a brand of Christianity that we are foisting upon our generation and the average kid smart enough to tell you it's phony. I've got to have a Christianity, my friend, that functions at the real level of life. And the rubber meets the road in your home. That's why the Apostle says, be filled with the Holy Spirit and test it at the level of home life. And beginning at verse 22 and moving into chapter 6, 
He gives a whole series of relationships. Mind you, relationships always create responsibility. So he gives the relationship first of the husband to the wife, of the wife to the husband. He gives the relationship in the first part of chapter 6 between children and parents and between parents and children. And he says, in effect, if you want to evaluate whether you are under the control of the Spirit, don't look at your ministry. Look at your marriage. Now tonight, we want to concentrate in this passage on the husband, his role and his responsibility. In chapter 5, verses 2 through 29, the apostle sets forth a twofold thrust to his argument. First of all, he sets forth the husband's scriptural position. That's found in verses 22 through 24. The second thing he sets forth is the husband's supreme passion. That's found in verses 25 through 29. And I want you to see these in relationship as an overview before we examine the component part. The husband's scriptural position is that of a leader. His supreme passion is that of a lover. The first responsibility lends authority to the relationship. The second lends affection to the relationship. One is an objective responsibility, the other a subjective responsibility. And if you have one without the other, you always have distortion. You know, the longer I am a Christian, the more profoundly impressed I am with the balance of the Scriptures. I have often said to my students at the seminary, gentlemen, you do not have to do anything to move in the direction of an extreme. Just keep going the way you are. You will land there. One of the primary techniques of the enemy is to get you off on a tangent on an extreme. If he cannot freeze you, he will make you a hopeless fanatic. Well, what difference does it make? He accomplishes the same purpose. And it is only the Spirit of God that can give you balance. 
Now, nowhere is this seen more clearly than with respect to the husband. His position, one of leadership. His passion, one of love. His is to be a leadership of love. Just like Jesus Christ. If you have leadership without love, you have dictatorship. If you have love without leadership, you have sentimentality. It is only a leadership of love that provides the impact that God intended for a husband in the home. Now, let's look at his scriptural position in verses 22 through 24. He is to be a leader. Now we are compelled to blast before we can build. Because whenever you mention the subject of the husband being the head of the home, you automatically surface several erroneous concepts, none of which is supported by the Scripture. And I would like to blast at five of these which I trust you will erase permanently from your thinking, for they find no biblical warrant whatever. Number one, headship is not dictatorship. This passage provides no warrant for an autocratic rule. One of my favorite questions on an ordination or doctoral exam is to ask the young man, Sir, what does it mean to be the head of your home? Or would you repeat that question? Yes, I'd be delighted to. What does it mean to be the head of your home? Well, and he will usually direct me to this passage, and he will give me a verse-by-verse -verse exposition, throw a little Greek in to impress me, and after we get all through, I will say, that's lovely. Now, what does it mean to be the head of your home? Do you mean I get up in the morning and say, okay, white kids, line up, here are the orders for the day, I'll be back at quarter of six, Roger, as you were. Don't laugh, my friend. The Christian community is loaded with frustrated drill sergeants running around with his biblical club, the husband is the head of the home. And you know he's not because he has to tell you so often. You preach it from the pulpit and when the point gets weak, you pound a little harder, the husband's the head of the home, and every woman shouts, Amen, glory, Selah. <laughs> One woman said, of course my husband's the head, and I'm the neck that moves the head. <laughs> you soon discover it's not who rules the roost, but who rules the rooster. 
that really count. Will you notice in this passage, verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is not in the process of cramming anything down your throat. Even though he is the Lord. He's the sovereign with complete right to your life. But he's not in the process of exercising an autocratic rule in your experience as a member of his church. And no husband has any scriptural support for that kind of a rule in his home. This is to rest the scriptures to your own destruction. Secondly, headship does not mean that the husband is superior and the wife inferior. The scriptures plainly teach that spiritually a man and a woman are equal. Paul in Galatians says, there is neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile. You are all one in Jesus Christ. And on the spiritual realm there is complete equality. Spiritually, you are equal. Functionally, you are different. Now turn back in your Bibles for just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 where we find a divine series of relationships. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. Paul says, But I would have you know that the head of every man, and this is the generic term, mankind, irrespective of sex, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And you have this kind of a relationship. He's saying you have two individuals, both of whom are related to Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, of every believer. Here is a man. Here is a woman. These two, united in one flesh. And as we discover, the more dynamic the relationship with Christ, the more dynamic the relationship with each other. You show me a man or a woman out of fellowship with Jesus Christ, and I will show you a couple who have the greatest potential for being out of fellowship with each other. Now he says, functionally, the head of this woman is the man. And the head of the man and the woman is Christ. 
And the head of Christ is God. Now, my friends, if you are even entertaining the idea that a woman has any element of inferiority, then you are caught in a logical trap. You are saying because a woman is to be submissive to a man in God's functional order, therefore she is inferior. By the same logic you are saying, because Jesus Christ willingly submitted and subjected himself to the Father's headship, he is therefore inferior. My friends, that is heresy. And it's just as heretical to entertain a shred of thought that a woman is inferior and a man is superior because God has given him the functional responsibility of headship. Jesus Christ took on him the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and subjected himself to the Father's headship and fulfilled his will. I think, my friends, we need to do an awful lot of thinking in this area and a great deal of communication. Because whenever you even mention the subject of submission, immediately you get a reaction. As if submission were the exclusive responsibility of a woman. My friends, submission is the lifestyle of the believer. Well, you say, who said this? God said this. Friend, don't come up and argue with me. I didn't invent this. And your argument is not really with the Apostle Paul, who many have erroneously said, must have been a woman hater. Must have been a man with a severe case of feminine protest. You know, whenever a person says anything like this, it's perfectly obvious that they are revealing their cavernous ignorance. And particularly, their lack of understanding of the culture of this day. It was the Apostle Paul who lifted woman out of the level of being a common animal sold for the price of a gorged ox to the place of being equal with a man before God. Only Christianity, my friend, ever rescued woman from the degradation of the culture of that day and every day since. Now, you can fight this truth or you can obey it. You can resist it or you can respond to it. The option is yours. You are free to make the choice, but you are not free to escape the consequences. See, we are living in a generation in which we're on a freedom kick. That's the watchword of the hour. I'm free. Don't tell me what to do. And I love to explain this to a group of college kids, particularly when we're on the 16th floor of a building. 
Because I say, my friend, you're perfectly free to jump out the window. Be my guest. Once you get out the window, you're no longer free. You're a hopeless slave to a law that will dash you in pieces on the sidewalk below. You're free to jump out, but you are not free to escape the consequences. And men and women, you are free to decide whether you're going to be the head of your home and whether you are going to be submissive to the headship of that home under the Lord. You're free to decide, but you are not free to escape the consequences of your decision. And I don't know what arrogance it is that presupposes that the God who originated marriage, who designed it, and who gives the specifications for its functioning, could be the one who does not understand how it best operates. And to sit in judgment to say, God, I know how to run my marriage better than you, even though you created it, is incredible pride. And as we heard this morning, this is what the Spirit of God needs to put the axe to. There is a third thing that headship is not. It does not mean that the man makes all the decision. It does not mean that there is no room for discussion, that there is no room for delegation. You know this by the pattern of Jesus Christ. For as the head of the church, he has delegated fantastic responsibilities to you and me. How ridiculous for me to make decisions in my home in areas for which I am totally incompetent. I have a wife who is an authority on areas in my home of which I know virtually nothing. And it would be shimeronic for me to make all of the decisions in my home when many of those decisions need to be made in areas for which I have no competency whatever. Furthermore, this is to completely bypass the fact that God has given to my wife gifts and wisdom and insight. And to bypass this, is to mortgage the very value of the one-flesh relationship. Now, when you are younger, this is a lot harder going down. But you don't live too long before you come to appreciate that it is the greater part of wisdom to discuss a lot with your wife before you make a decision. I break out in a cold sweat just thinking about some of the stupid decisions I made in the earlier part of our marriage. I remember one day we discussed an issue. We went back and forth in this thing, and we landed with opposing viewpoint. And so I felt led of God. 
so we made the decision. One week later, it viscerates me just to think of it. <laughs> and of course, when this happens in your marriage, I'll tell you how to solve it, woman. Be sure to say, see, honey, I told you so. If you don't listen to me, we wouldn't have gotten into this rhubarb. That really will help your marriage no end. <laughs> you don't have to come to the place of humility and say, sweetheart, I really blew it. And to have an understanding wife look you straight in the eye and say, honey, let's start from here. You see, what you're thinking is what happened in a relationship when you have opposing viewpoints. You've had a full discussion, you've got all of the facts, but you've got to make a decision, but you don't agree. Then, my friend, under God, it is the responsibility of a man to make the final decision. Now, my lady friend, God will never hold you responsible for the stupid decisions of your husband. Isn't that encouraging? You ought to shout glory for that. What he will hold you responsible for is your submission to his decision. That leads me to the fourth. And that is headship. Does not mean that the husband is right. It simply means He's responsible. He's the steward. And someday, my gentleman friend, you are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus Christ will say to you, My son, give an account of your stewardship in your home. And you will say, Lord, I sure want to remind you first of all of how busy I was in your service at the Church of the Immaculate Perception. <laughs> and he will say, your stewardship in your home. Oh, the Lord, I want you to know how many verses of Scripture I committed to memory. And he will say, your stewardship at home. And you will say, but Lord... You know, I, I really made something out of that business and you remember how much of it I gave to missions. And he will say, your stewardship at home. And no amount of professional or other competence will in any way satisfy him in terms of your stewardship at home. And for your comfort, gentlemen, God is not primarily concerned about whether you are right. He's dreadfully concerned about your responsibility. How well did you take care of your family? Because you are the responsible one 
And you'll never be able to palm it off. But the woman thou gavest me, because that's how it got started in the first place. Lord, uh, you'll have to discuss that matter with my wife. That was out of the area of my concern. May I also say to you, my woman friend, I hope that you don't expect your husband to be omniscient. Will you allow him the luxury of a mistake? That's the part of growing up. God doesn't hold you accountable for his mistakes. He does hold you accountable for your submission. Fifth and last. I want you to note that headship is never to be demanded. Now it's interesting to keep two things in mind. And that is the command that God gives to a man and the command that God gives to a woman. They are vastly different. The command to the husband is to love your wife. And by the way, that command is never given to a woman to love your husband. You say, what are you saying? You mean I'm not responsible for loving my husband? Of course you are. That's not the command because you are not the initiator. There's only one passage in, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 4 where Paul says to the older women, you teach the younger women, you train them to love their husband and to love their children. But nowhere are you ever commanded to love. That is the responsibility of the man. You are commanded to be submissive. But the husband is never commanded. Make your wife submissive. And it's very important to keep these differentiated in your thinking. My judgment, no woman in her right mind resists the leadership of a husband who loves her as Christ loved the church. The way to get submission is by love, not by fiat and command. Well, if it doesn't mean these things, what does it mean? I believe it means that you are the pace setter. And it's interesting because that's exactly the figure that's used of Jesus Christ in his relationship to the church. He's the forerunner. He's the one out in front, leading. And you know, I find over and over again, and it's a tragic part of Christian experience, I find a man who professionally is extremely competent. In his community, he is perfectly articulate. In his church, he is a spiritually discerning leader. And when he comes home, he's out to lunch. And you know what that is? That's a cop-out. And there's no way out of it in terms of scriptural responsibility. 
I can't say, but Lord, this isn't my area. I delegate that to my wife. He says, but I delegated it to you, and you can't pass that on. The responsibility is yours. I'm holding you accountable. Now look at the pattern in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now notice, being the Savior of the body, there's the clue. What does headship mean? It means being the Savior of your family. Now, I'm sure you are aware that salvation is used in a number of ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to salvation from damnation. That is always an individual matter, never a corporate matter. And invariably in the scriptures, it's the salvation of the soul. But he's talking about something different here. He's not talking about salvation from damnation. He's talking about salvation from damage. You will notice it's the Savior of the body, that is, of the church. People who are already saved. How does Jesus Christ save the body comprised of souls already saved? He saves it from damage. He is the one who's out in the front leading, encouraging, providing all of the means. Pace setting. Are you? You say, but I really don't know how. That's exactly what it, the Spirit of God is in business to enable you to do. May I ask you, my lady friend? Are you making it easier or harder for your husband to be the head of your home? So many times I have people say to me, but, uh, you know, my husband doesn't take the leadership. And I say, do you allow him? Do you feed him? Do you encourage him? Or do you ridicule him every time he even takes one step in the direction of leadership. There's a second responsibility in this passage, and that's his supreme passion. He's to be a lover. And your culture won't help you here at all. Because the average American male is an incapacitated lover. He's brought up in a culture in which loving is a sign of weakness when the scriptures make it a sign of strength. And the sign of a man's strength is not determined by his physical strength, but by his spiritual strength. That's why the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 cites the illustration of Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Think of it. The Almighty Son of God, who could have liquidated the enemy, has slapped across the face and spit in the face, and he never returns in kind. It doesn't take any strength, my friend, when somebody punches you in the nose to turn around and give him a rounder. 
You don't have to be spiritually insightful when somebody reams you out to wait for him to get through and then take that knife and just slice him. That doesn't take any strength. Any weakling can do that. The real sign of spiritual strength is the person who's reamed out and who sits quietly and takes it for Christ's sake. When all of the flesh is rising up within. It's only the Spirit that can control you. May I ask you also, as a parent, what are you doing to develop this in your son? Are you encouraging him to be a lover? I mean, are you encouraging him to be a tender person? I have the greatest admiration for some of my athlete friends, some of whom are the finest specimens of humanity and who could probably wrap a guy around the pole. And yet who have that Christ-like characteristic of meekness. I think of a friend of mine who plays on a team and they double-team him and triple-team him. And he's known as the tiger in the lake. The interesting thing is that whenever you see a fracas in the course of a game, you will see him moving in the opposite direction. And somehow, he just goes up higher in my list every time I see him in action. Anybody can get into the fight. But for the guy that could clean it up to walk in the opposite direction, I say, there goes a man. And I've seen this man with children, so tender, so gracious, to pick up a little child, and the tears roll down his face as he embraces that little kid to himself. And I say, I found a man. And there are very few of them. I'm talking about how gracious are you developing your child to be. Anybody can be obnoxious. You don't even have to cultivate that. Someone who's affectionate. Someone who's thoughtful. I don't know my friends, but I don't think I ever am more proud. And I trust God forgives me for this. But I don't think I'm ever more proud than when I see my two sons take my wife out and open the door of that car and help her in and walk down together, one on each arm, and see them swell with pride. That's my mom. You know what I keep asking myself as I'm asking you? That's caught more than taught. And I think the reason why, ladies and gentlemen, we are not developing more lovers among men in Christian community is that there are not enough of us who are modeling it to our children. Now, the interesting thing in this passage, this is repeated twice for emphasis. This is a full-time job, 24 hours a day. What an assignment. First of all, he says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. A number of years ago, a student walked into my office. He said, hey, Prime, I don't think I love my wife enough. I said, I beg your pardon? 
He said, I don't think I love my wife enough. I said, would you run that by once more? I just hear that so seldom that, that it really interests me. No, he said, I really don't think I love her enough. So I turned to this passage, and I read it, and I said, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. I said, do you love your wife that much? Oh, no. He said, of course not. I said, then, friend, you better get with it. You better get on the beam. That's a full-time assignment. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you'll notice he says, he gave himself for it. Not in terms of what you're going to get out of it, but in terms of what you're giving to it, that he might present it. I saw a kid on a college campus not too long ago, a Christian kid walking down, and on a back he had stenciled on this little t-shirt, this man is under construction. <laughs> That's beautiful. You see, this presupposes, my friend, that this is the product of cultivation. This is not an accident. This takes time and attention. Love always demands a response. And to say, I love you, without any expression, is ridiculous. A man in my office some time ago, really a couple, I had a tremendous problem with them as a couple, because every time I'd ask him a question, she'd run off at the mouth. And then I'd ask her a question, and he'd talk. I really thought, you know, I had ventriloquists on my hands. And I said, look, we've got to get some ground rules going. When I talk to you, you won't say anything, okay? And when I talk to you... You won't say anything. Well, we tried that for a while, and finally I sent him out. I mean her out. And I said to him, my friend, do you love your wife? And you know, if I'd have picked up a two-by-four and hit the guy on the head with all of my might, I wouldn't have jarred him as much. He sat up in that chair, do I love my wife? Of course I love my wife. Just to say, you don't think I came up here to be asked a stupid question like that, do you? Well, I said, it's wonderful to know. I said, when's the last time you told your wife? Tell her. He said, do I have to tell her? No, I said, you don't have to tell her. But I said, I'd suggest that if you try it, you better get her in an overstuffed chair. You're liable to produce a coronary. He said, look, 23 years ago, I told that woman I loved her, and it's still in force until I revoke it. <laughs> I didn't know I had a lawyer on my hands. Do you know the amazing thing is before the marriage, good night, he runs around the other side of the car, opens the door after the marriage. What's the matter? She got a broken arm? For the marriage, we bring the flowers. After the marriage, save it for the funeral. For the marriage, bring a box of candy. After the marriage, she's too fat already. And that which starts here suddenly comes to a screeching halt. And I think this is the greatest tragedy that I see before my eyes all the time. And sometimes the disillusionment starts in the honeymoon. You know what he's suggesting? He's suggesting, my friend, that you fall in love with your wife afresh every day. And that you love her, not because she's lovely or lovable, Do you love her as Christ loved the church? That's unconditional love. My friend, if Jesus Christ loved you because you were lovely, you'd be lost. He loved you just as you are. And then he adds 
You ought to love her as your own body. And no man hates his own body. And if you love your wife, he says, you love yourself because you are one flesh. He no longer sees you as two, but as one. And if you love her, you're loving yourself because you are loving the relationship that God has brought together in one flesh. Now we have some rather ridiculous ideas about love. And the question is often asked, what do you think it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church? I think it means that you are to love by having the best interests of the one loved at heart. I have a very close friend who's a surgeon. Some time ago I had some pains down in here, so I went to see him. He said, well, Hendricks, we better take some pictures. So we took some pictures. And he said, Hendricks, you got a rock collection down there. And since you're not a geologist, we're going to have to take them out. Would you believe it, my friend, he sliced me down here? He put an incision about that long. And he never shed a tear. It's my closest friend. He never said, Oh, yeah, I hate to tell you, but I'm going to have to cut you. I really think he enjoyed it. It's quite a cut-up. We discovered after the surgery that it could have meant my life. He hurt me in order to heal me. And one of the foolish concepts of love is that it's always that saccharine variety in which there is no intelligence and there is no realism. Some of the greatest evidence of love on the part of my wife has been some of the hardest things. I have had to accept. But in love, because she loves me more than anyone on this earth, she told me. And I have done the same with her. And I give testimony tonight, my friend, that it is in this kind of an intelligent love relationship, as Christ loved the church, and as you love your own body, and you care for it, and you nurture it, and you protect it, and you provide for it, that you have the pattern of the relationship that a man should sustain to his wife. Interesting thing in the closing verses of this chapter, you are told that this is a mystery. And that your marriage is really a miniature of the relationship that Christ sustains to the church. Can I ask you this question in conclusion? Could I ever come into your home? Could your unregenerate neighbor spend some time in your home and come away knowing about the relationship between Christ and His church? They will if there is a leadership of love. 